0: Hello and welcome to the Nonfiction Podcast. I'm Deborah Campbell, a professor in the Department of Writing and an author and a writer of nonfiction.
1: Hi, I'm David Leach. I'm also a professor in the Department of Writing at the University of Victoria as well, specializing in nonfiction and magazine writing. So, so Deborah, we we thought this would be our our year in reading. A lot of things have happened over the last year, uh, not all of which we want to talk about. <laughs> uh, but 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 uh, we we've certainly had more time, perhaps than than in the last few years, uh, to do a reading. What what was your reading experience like in general over over this year of the pandemic so far?
0: Mm, yeah. Uh, this year has been a, an interesting year in, in reading. And, you know, it really reminded me of how much comfort I take from books and from reading in some ways to escape from all the other, uh, you know, ambient reading that's around us, whether that's the news or, or social media. And um, interestingly, Right when uh, things started happening this uh, past year, uh, I was reading at the time uh, a translation of Anton Chekhov's letters. Uh, the translation is called "A Life in Letters." It's the two thousand four Penguin edition, and I had been reading just you know one or two letters in the evening before bed, kind of thing. And uh, what's what's so fascinating about Chekhov? Many things are, but. Um, he was a doctor. And uh, so this is sort of 1860s uh, Russia and a lot of what he was doing was treating uh, cholera epidemics so he was right inside uh, various pandemics it seemed like they were always raging in Russia at the time Uh, and in fact he's sort of a little bit blithe about it so that was really interesting when things shut down uh, here and we were surrounded by pandemic news to be reading uh, the letters of someone who for whom it was kind of an everyday thing And um, he he says uh, one of the things he says in his letters is that um, medicine is my lawful wife and literature is my mistress. When I get fed up with one, I spend the night with the other. Though it's irregular, it's less boring this way. And besides, neither of them loses anything through my infidelity. Uh, And I just loved his um, his relationship between medicine and words. and uh, just some of the stories that he had to tell about, about uh, you know what he what he was dealing with. So in a sense, it put some of what we were dealing with uh, in context. Um, yeah. So that that was my early pandemic reading. What were what were you what were you reading at the time?
1: I can't remember. I, I remember my, my reading experiences went through so many kind of like peaks and valleys at, at a certain point when just everything shut down, especially uh, this time of year, my kids activities would just kind of take off and I'd be kind of rushing around and coaching them in softball or baseball. Suddenly I had so much more free time I was on leave as well so I wasn't teaching I wasn't well like you kind of having to scramble around and and figure out how to teach online Uh, so so there was I had time to read um, big um, books I I read like a whole it was a trilogy of like Chinese science fiction these three huge books that I just kind of tore through yet at the same time This was all kind of like Trump-era America, so as much as I knew it was bad for me, I was like obsessively kind of reading Trump- tweets and and CNN reports and what Fox News was saying online and feeling kind of terrible about how the world is coming apart and all the and all the kind of leaders who are supposed to hold us together are just kind of tearing at the edges so it, I, th- I think it was like this relief finally at the beginning of, of 2021 where when uh trump got banned from Twitter and I could kind of break away from all all that as well but there, there was still like a, a background of, of different re- I found time to read more novels than I have in in many, many years, uh, which was um, a delight. Uh, I I took on a a big group reading project. I'll I'll talk about it a little bit later in in the podcast, basically uh, a year of of reading Marcel uh, Proust. And then I decided to um, teach this course uh, in memory and creativity that uh, we've done a a couple of podcasts with guests from that course. So it involved um, either reading or rereading a lot of different books across multiple genres um, about uh, memory, including kind of scientific literature, but also poetry, plays, um, novels, and a lot of creative nonfiction. Obviously that being my background in, in uh, creative nonfiction and memoirists and personal essayists really kind of wrestling with the nature of memory. So uh, I think as we know, sort of all of our kind of memories have been kind of activated in in strange ways during the pandemic. And I had that kind of doubling effect of reading about memory and then having these memories uh, pour back and, and not knowing what I read and what, what was coming out of my memory. So it all feels a little bit uh, uh, surreal. Uh, uh, what are some kind of uh, highlights uh, for, for you uh, from your uh, uh, year of reading? Things that have mm-hmm. stayed with you, things you've read recently, things that you've just absolutely uh, loved and absorbed into your very being.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I also read a lot of uh, fiction uh, during this during this year. Um, originally, it was because the libraries were closed and bookstores were, you know, closed or, or sort of intermittently available, and so I was just looking through my shelves and I would think, oh. Uh, what haven't I read uh, in a long time that I was looking, I think, for comfort reading in a, in a way, right? Something that would um, take me away from, from the present moment. Uh, so I read um, Annie Proulx's uh, The Shipping News. Oh, which,
1: gorgeous.
0: Yeah, which is just a, a wonderful, hilarious, um, beautiful novel about uh, Newfoundland. Uh, I believe. And it's really, it's about a a kind of misfit of a newspaper writer. And, uh, you know, being a nonfiction writer, and most writers are misfits in one way or the other, one can, one can, you know, get inside that world. And he's in suddenly in this small town where he doesn't really know his way around. Uh, And he's had, you know, tragedies in his life. And, it's just a, a wonderful uh, journey inside that, uh, and, it, and, it, and it took me to a place in time that was both, um, you know, close and far. So, I, I think that I was looking for those kinds of those kinds of reads, and that was that was one of the highlights. Um, my other favorite fiction read of the year. Uh, was a book called Five Wives by Joan Thomas, and she's also a Canadian writer. I hadn't read anything by her before, uh, but she won the GG about two years ago for for fiction. And Five Wives is is a really fascinating uh, historical novel, very grounded in research. And so I sometimes am fascinated by the way fiction writers can take what really happened and and bring it to life. And she really did her research on this. And this is a story that um, uh, happened in the mid 1950s and a group of missionaries, Amer- American missionaries went to Ecuador and they, uh, the men were determined to go and convert the indigenous people in the Amazon and uh, they were murdered. Um, in fact, I don't know if murder is exactly the word because they were going into this, into this uh, untouched territory. And she gets inside the minds of the women, their wives. And I think she does an exceptional job, Joan Thomas, of telling the story um, without judgment, but with all the facts. So you, as a reader, are inside how they think, but also able to see what that looks like, what that means. Um, and so you know you learn things later on, like how a lot of these missionaries paved the, wa- the way for Shell Oil to move into the area. Um, and th- their story became uh, a sort of touchstone for a lot of the evangelical community in the United States. So there was some contemporary residences as well. Anyway, I think she de- definitely deserved the Governor General Award for that, for that novel.
1: Oh, that sounds great. I've, I, yeah, I've heard uh, a, a lot about that and yet haven't read any uh, Joan uh, Thomas. A couple of novels that kind of uh, stuck out for me amongst the ones I read was uh, Kevin Barry's Night Boat to Tangier which is mm-hmm. just about two kind of middle-aged uh, Irish ex-crooks uh, sitting in this this kind of, uh, I think it's this grimy ferry terminal in the south of Spain, uh, waiting um, because they believe the, the estranged daughter of one of them is, is going to kind of pass through on her way to Tangier. But it's just this kind of dark, funny dive into their lives and and memory largely done through dialogue and I, I always kind of marvel at, at playwrights or, or fiction writers or even memoirists who can really capture dialogue uh, well that is is not one of my uh, talents and, and Kevin Barry does it uh, so well it reminds me a bit of a, like a Martin McDonough play with the kind of a, almost a dark Samuel Beckett edge and yet a really kind of uh, touching uh, domestic story uh, that kind of pulls it together and the other one that just kind of blew me uh, away was um, uh, a children's bible um, by Lydia Millet which is uh, essentially a a climate fiction uh, climate apocalypse uh, social comedy uh, as it were with uh, a bunch of uh, well-off um uh, professional urbanites basically my people uh heading off to to um uh, some sort of summer home that they've rented uh in the American northeast when this huge uh a storm hits and they're forced into survivor mode, but it's all actually told uh, through the uh, essentially the collective point of view of their very cynical uh, teenage uh, children as the this kind of thin veneer of their social fabric uh, peels. Uh, away, and there was just—I I mean, there's lines in it uh, um, that that really stuck with me. But there was like one passage where uh, where they, they the kids observe they're kind of rescued at some point by uh, by some people, and they say we sat around and listened to the angels tell stories. The angels are the people that have rescued them. The mistakes they'd made, their lives, were situations, and strangest. The time on a fishing ship in Alaska when Luca's job was cut the heads off flatfish the size of sofas. The time Time he saw an eyeball dangling out of a woman's eye socket after an accident and had to tape a paper cut over it. The time on a raft in Norway when he watched the blue ice of towering glaciers fall into the warming sea and a man sat on a piano on an ice floe. The glacier fell like water he said and the man played a funeral song. Uh, and just kind of thinking about the ways we we address the, this potential calamity of of climate change it's so overwhelming and Lydia millet found a way into it through through the the social lives of these uh, young young people in a way I felt quite co- compelling uh, and and humorous and uh, of course a, a little depressing
0: and maybe putting some of our own experiences into some you know a little bit of context too right exactly. um, things could be things could go a, a lot worse <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly <laughs> so what else what else did you uh, uh, enjoy over the last year
0: well uh one of the things that i was doing over, over this uh, spring and summer uh, of last year was writing um an essay about uh, uh writers writing the, about the disasters of war. And of course, war always puts a lot of our, our uh, problems in perspective. And I was reading nonfiction writers that do a good job of telling uh, stories of displacement and, and looking at specifically at the Middle East. So I read um, Jean Said she's the She's the sister of Edward Said. Uh, and she wrote a memoir called Beirut in Fragments about the Lebanon War when she was living there as a, she was a professor and a a young mom as well, Um, and it's just a fascinating, I don't even know if memoir is the right word for it, I would say it's a collection of personal essays that look at the experience of war and displacement, Um, from many different angles. She decided to take a kaleidoscope uh, approach. So for example, she might do a chapter on the glossary of terms that people use uh, in times of war. And they would be little simple little terms that uh, indicated uh, big things, just the way people shorthand their experience. and uh, she also talks about how her struggles to put these difficult experiences into forms because whenever she tries to impose order on the, on the chaos, it just doesn't work. Um, one, at one point she tried to write it as a satire and she started facing the same problems that a lot of dystopian novelists are faced with these days which is that it looks too much like reality. Um, so she, she, I'm always interested in nonfiction writers who discuss their process, even while they're doing it, maybe because I'm interested in their process, but looking at the ways that she, you know, approached her writing and then abandoned it. And at the same time, discussing, you know, what she was dealing with every day. I think it's a, it's a beautiful, uh, a beautiful piece of work coming out of a very, a chaotic time. Uh, so that was something I was focusing on when there was a lot of, a lot of chaos going on around us. Um, another book that was uh, a highlight um, is uh, probably Helen Garner's Yellow Notebook. She is an Australian writer and probably better known, well, I wouldn't say necessarily, but, but well known for her novels. But she's also written quite a bit of Uh, Nonfiction and she's kind of a household name in Australia, but not so much in the rest of the world until more recently. Um, She's in her late 70s now and she's always kept a diary. Uh, and they're not like anybody else's diary. I mean, God forbid you publish my diary, but, um, you know, she, yeah, please no. In fact, she burned some of her early diaries. She took them out and threw them in the fire because all she was writing about was love and how it didn't work out. And and then at some point, some point, maybe in her mid thirties, she just woke up and started looking around and that's where she starts her published diaries because she's noticing things that are going on around her and what I loved about it it's these little vignettes it's like she sliced out vignettes from the from the diary that add up to a coherent narrative, but don't really fill in the blanks. All the characters just have initials, partly because they're often other famous writers that you know either she was friends with or involved with. So she's maybe doing a little bit of um, careful protecting of identities, um, but I'm sure it wouldn't stop the gossip mill in Australia. <laughs> but um, she's, She's just really good at noticing things about people and about things going on, little quotidian moments, uh, and seeing them differently than everybody else. And I think that's maybe the essence of of voice. You know, we talk about writing voice and what that means. What's a writer's voice? And sometimes I think it's just what do they, what do what do you as a writer pay attention to? that other people miss, and and she does that. And she also tends to not have characters that, I mean, characters they are real people, that are black and white. Uh, And I think that's been a theme for me this year too, is thinking about how much uh, conversation has become polarized, um, both on the national and international levels. Certainly social media plays a big role in this. Um, but the ability to see things in a nuanced way uh, that it, that life isn't just good and evil and she's able to do this with these complicated, you know, characters who are in her life and I think that that is refreshing because we get too used to uh, I don't know, people being you know, one or the other. Um, so no, that, 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 yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great example it immediately calls to mind. I don't know if you saw it in the recent New Yorker, uh, Rachel Aviv's profile of um, the memory uh, researcher Elizabeth Loftus. Which of course I immediately had to read up. It's like oh my, I read about it. it was like oh this is all about memory, and it's in the New Yorker. But Elizabeth Loftus is is like incredibly influential uh, American uh, psychologist, research psychologist who was one of the people who kind of pioneered and kind of identified the fact that yeah memory isn't stable, that it's very fluid, especially autobiographical uh, memory is reshaped every time we can go back to it and can also be ex- influenced by external factors and, and people and the whole kind of issues around repressed memory uh, syndrome and and how kind of uh, testimony uh, or remembered testimony can be uh, influenced by outsiders. She's quite controversial as well because she's been kind of um, hired as expert witness in a lot of like high profile uh, trials of misbehaving uh, men like uh, Harvey Weinstein or, or uh, Michael Jackson. And so, so, quite a polarizing uh, figure, but the the profile of her, both its kind of of her work, of her character. Uh, is so kind of layered and complex and then it takes this absolutely fascinating turn midway through the feature and kind of spirals down into uh, more of her kind of family story and brings in uh, brothers uh, and and sisters and, and tries to kind of get at the core of what's driving her. It was interesting even from the process as well because it's been a strange year to be a journalist, especially a magazine journalist, where you can't actually go out in the field and hang out with people. So a lot of this had to be uh, via zoom and it was one of the best kind of zoom interview profiles that i've read because most of them are are pretty kind of creaky but she gets a bunch of people on the on the zoom line and and kind of uh, uh with their different diverging memories of of what happened it was just a just an amazingly uh brilliant profile and it reminds me as well i finally finally uh read motivated my my course um a book that i've been meaning to read for for years, which is Alison Bechtel's um, graphic memoir, Fun Home. Again, about an incredibly complex, um, kind of not black and white, uh, person in in the life of her her father who was kind of abusive in many ways neglected in others uh, very kind of repressed and yet incredibly uh, incredibly kind of creative and and close to her uh, and just the way she kind of outlines in chapter every chapter through both her kind of drawings her kind of asides and these kind of artifacts of her own uh, journal and and photographs uh, in this unique form of a graphic novel turned into um, a memoir. Uh, and again, it's lit, uh, layered with uh, her own kind of uh, literary uh, allusions as well. is one of the most kind of complex and, and fascinating uh, creative works of creative nonfiction I've ever uh, encountered. And it generated a lot of kind of great debate. Uh, with with my students because it's both funny and poignant and and, and frustrating and and uh, yeah it's just hard to kind of pin down who this man was as she kind of circles around him from uh, different points of view.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I think that that is you know that complexity is part of the making of of of, of really good. Literature, you know, or even great literature—it has that complexity. And one of the one of the uh, articles that I was reading for this this essay I've been writing, and something that I've been thinking about a lot over the past year or two, is um, a study done by uh, she's an Atlantic uh, magazine journalist named Amanda Ripley, who has a new book out that just came out. Um, based on some of her research for this, uh, this study. Um, and it's called Complicating the Narratives. And it's a study that she did, looking at uh, the way that news uh, news journalists uh, in particular, uh, simplify narratives. Um, so, I mean, of course, you know, I, don't want to get into U.S. politics too much, but we know, you know, uh, it's pretty easy to 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 get into your camps, uh, pro and con, uh, over the American political situation in the last few years. Um, and she looks at the way um, how how much stronger and better journalism is when you allow nuance, contradictions. Um, even things that you know don't seem like they fit with someone's story into the story, and how journalists can be can be tempted to smooth out those contradictions, get rid of those nuances, simplify it. And of course, you know, if you've only got thirty seconds, you don't have a lot of time. But uh, in in longer work, especially, how important it is to invite that contradiction and to look at something. And and she also looks at at conflict. You know, how this kind of journalism uh, creates and fuels conflict on a societal level and how its opposite, introducing complexity, introducing nuance, um, not uh, smoothing things over, uh, can bring people together so that they can start talking about what divides them. so I highly recommend reading this, uh, Complicating the Narratives. And her new book is called High Conflict, which I have not read yet, but um, uh, got a very good review in the New York Times last week. So uh, I'm looking forward to that.
1: That sounds great. Uh, and uh, well, we, as we all know, uh, one of the things that, that kind of simplifies the narrative and, and causes these great d- divides, uh, both in politics and even the reaction to the pandemic, basically everything is, is social mm-hmm. media. Uh, And I think back to your your kind of wonderful uh, essay, I think it was in Literary Review of Canada about social media. And I know you've also had your students do digital detoxes and and write about uh, that experience. Uh, One of the memoirs I read that I really enjoyed, I mean, this uh, uh, personal area of interest is Technology and Society is Anna Wiener's The Uncanny Valley. And she's now a New Yorker uh, tech cri- uh, writer, um, but she describes her years in which she kind of moved for, as like an underlaying, uh, underpaid underling in the New York publishing business and suddenly kind of found her- herself through these kind of series of moves uh, working for startups in Silicon Valley and having kind of like a, a firsthand but female point of view on this whole weird Techno utopian bro culture uh, and all of their kind of uh, strange delusional visions of of the future and just their their weird lifestyle and the, the the assumptions they have and and also a, a first hand kind of realization of just like the terrible uh, effects it, this is having on society as well and she she just in, in a really kind of clear declarative. Uh, proper noun heavy style um she she lets without without necessarily there's judgment but she lets us kind of see things uh um, from the inside uh from her uh eyes and there was a passage that i, I think uh, i i saved on my iphone irony of ironies uh <laughs> that that kind of again made me think of your work and and uh, um and just kind of like the the, that push and pull of social media, which I'm always trying to pull myself off of. And then I find myself kind of fighting about politics or bike lanes or uh, vaccines or whatnot. Uh, but she writes, the full spectrum of human emotion infused social platforms. Grief, joy, anxiety, mundanity flowed. People were saying nothing and saying it all the time. Strangers swapped confidences with other strangers in return for unaccredited psychological advice. They shared stories of private infidelities and public incontinence, photos of their bedroom interiors, photos faded and cherished of long-dead family members, photos of their miscarriages. People were giving themselves away at every opportunity. That last line just kind of uh, resonated with me. i got to stop giving myself away on on the internet and and try and kind of... uh, uh, reconnect to to more uh, authentic ways of, of being and, and being together but uh, yeah a, a wonderful it's it's a quick read and uh, a real kind of insight into that world that is radically shaped reshaping both our society and i think even the way that we uh think
0: yeah yeah i, I think uh, uh yeah and it also points to you know we're we're looking we're looking for something in in social media that we might uh well we're neglecting you know what's happening here here and now um another another book that really spoke to me that i read this summer i read it in galleys um, because i do think it's one of these subjects that we know we should be paying attention to but uh you know, don't always want to read about, which is, um, you know, we know that the planet around us, even though our our virtual world is is uh, bubbling and, and, and bright and fascinating, the, the world around us is, is um, you know, in free fall on the climatic level, on the biodiversity level. And uh, so I, I, I read a couple of books on uh, climate and the environment and the two that these two that really stood out to me is one the one I read in galleys is J.B. McKinnon's forthcoming The Day the World Stops Shopping and what I what I loved about this book uh, among many things is that rather than making it about uh, you know the the problems of the of the planet at the moment, he decided to uh, conduct a thought experiment. What happens if we stop shopping? If we know that our consumption is driving um, species extinction, um, resource extraction, um, c- climate change, etc., what if? What happens if we stop shopping? So he looks at it in a non-fiction way. This is not sci-fi as it could be, um, but he looks at, um, okay, what would it be like to live on a one planet, uh, in a one planet country? You know, we're we're just using, you know, one instead of five or six planets worth of resources. Uh, So he goes to Ecuador and he looks at what that would look like. Um, What if uh, companies stopped needing to grow. So he goes to Japan and looks at a company that's been around for, what, 1300 years. It's not grown in 1300 years. Um, and uh, and he explores a lot of ideas that are, I would say, quite a lot beyond uh, the kind of things that I had been, you know, aware of in terms of, of consumption and Um, Even ideas like um, the way inequality drives consumerism because when even if we're doing say better than the person next door, there's a feeling that you you need to kind of keep on going right and how more equal societies tend to just um, be less consumerist oriented and he goes and spends time in the Kalahari with the hunter gatherers there who, you know, a lot of them had gone off to the city and decided that life was a lot better um, back home living very, very simply. Um, So I really recommend that one. And the other, the other really interesting climate change book I read was uh, Amatov Ghosh's um, The Great Derangement, which came out, I think 2016. And, and, and so I, uh, it took me a while, I guess, to get around to it. But what he looks at is how fiction has, by and large, uh, with you know some some exceptions, uh, and sci-fi being a big exception, um, really hasn't grappled with climate change and the great disruptions that are coming. Um, and he looks at it as something where we've come to picture fiction writing as a kind of individual moral adventure. So it's the individual, sort of like the the hero's journey kind of stories that have permeated fiction really over the last 200 years and haven't um, dealt with this really massive, not individual, not personal, but global phenomenon of a great change coming to our weather patterns um and I found that uh really fascinating so those were my sort of um big think big think reads I would say of
1: the... end of the world reads yeah those yeah. are great I'm, I'm, I'm a James McKinnon completist so I will absolutely kind of uh read that I, I I try and read everything he writes I think he also had like a really wonderful and, and kind of provocative and descriptive essay and in orion magazine recently as well that was uh, brilliant so it's interesting that his new book sounds almost like a, like a spin on the um what is it the, the world without us by alan weissman where he visits these it's, places yeah yeah, yeah. except yeah. the world without us shopping which is even more uh, fascinating kind of thought experiment as well. My my uh, kind of uh, well, I read the 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 Clify of of uh, as they call it of um, Lydia Mil- uh, Millet, but I also had a chance. I think it's a couple years old, but uh, one of Bill McKibben's latest books, *Falter*, as well, and uh, it was kind of interesting. I'd read uh, a lot of Bill McKibben's earlier stuff, and then kind of he, he's gone on and become such an important uh, climate change uh, activist, but again he's such a good writer as well and researcher and kind of pulling making that ability to make facts dance and 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 persuade you and kind of uh, get you engaged and a little bit fearful as well because in it he's not uh, I think the subtitle is has the human game played itself out or something a little bit daunting like that so he looks at he gathers all the material on climate change and the kind of pressing need to take action not just now but yesterday uh, but then he kind of mixes in um, uh, looking at both artificial intelligence and the potential kind of dangers and unintended consequences of that, and how it will kind of potentially kind of strip meaning out of out of some of the essential things of human life, like like uh, work and even creativity. And then he also looks at the the potential um, kind of dangers of um, uh, genetic engineering, and, and especially these kind of CRISPR gene editing technologies, and what that might mean if we're able to kind of um, uh, kind of do artisanal design of human babies uh, effectively as well and and knits together these kind of three threads almost existential threats in a way that again kind of is more of a call to to action than throwing up your hands and and weeping than you you might think i mean he's he's just got that not a sense of optimism, but a sense that kind of collectively we can do something, but we've got to actually kind of think about the problems in a deep and meaningful uh, way. So, yeah, I just kind of burned through it and then passed it along to my son, who's been uh, reading it as well, because it's like, man, <laughs> we've kind of screwed things up for you here. <laughs> Maybe this is a, a blueprint for your generation to, to uh, start fixing things. So Deborah, I understand that um, we both actually read uh, the same uh, novel, Ayad Akhtar's *Homeland Elegies*. I'm curious, what, what did you think of it?
0: Well, this is a this is an, a blend of fiction and nonfiction, and that's always a strange territory because you wonder how much is true and why is he making it up. And uh, this is a story of a young, uh, well, youngish, I guess he's he's, he's 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 must be close to fifty now, but. Uh, Pakistani American immigrant uh, for our children, child of immigrants in the United States. And he's got a very interesting family. His dad is a successful doctor and a huge Trump supporter. And he's a, a playwright and becomes a hugely successful playwright, which in fact he is in real life. And so you get to see a lot of the themes of the American dream and Uh, What it really looks like and his own questioning of it and it's it's kind of a combination of memoir essay and maybe making a few things up or calling it fiction so you don't get sued. I don't know what was your take David
1: i really liked it but it yeah it wasn't the novel i quite uh expected because of that blend of the, the fiction in the the autobiographical. i, I was uh, because i part way through it and i realized oh wait a minute this play that he's writing about through the voice of his quote-unquote fictional character I've seen it I was in New York City we went we went and saw uh disgraced i know exactly the plot I saw Gretchen mole playing it uh and and yeah it, it has this kind of the veneer or the the, the Structure of like a great American uh, novel wrestling with identity and family and money and sex. Um, but but it's from the perspective of yeah this this Pakistani a Muslim uh, immigrant family who are constantly being being excluded from from that narrative and wrestling with where they really fit in or do they really fit in? Yet at the same time it's exuberant it's it's funny it it takes all sorts of interesting um, uh, shifts uh, um, the the uh, the voice is is quite enthralling. Uh, there was one pastor I just like to read where he really dives into his creative process as well in a way that feels very uh, autobiographical and yet of the moment. He writes, After my habitual 20-minute distraction on Twitter and Facebook, I spent the next two hours making notes about the day. The technique I used for this sort of recall owed much to my years of uh, noting dreams. I dispensed with chronology and stuck to detail. The more vivid the fragment, the sound, the image, and the more exhaustively elaborated through language, the richer the associated uh, cluster of recollections it spawned. The process was counterintuitive, akin to restoring the incidental sedimentary layers on a piece of extracted ore. The mind recalled the essence and discarded the dross, but the dross was what swarmed with generative life. That night, as I wrote, wherever recollection alighted, led me back to the teeming soil of Kareen Hollander on the witness stand. And this, this is like that central trial that embroils his his um, uh, father and, and provides sort of much of the plot. And then he writes, it was almost midnight when I stopped. I turned on the TV. Colbert was talking about Trump. So was Fallon. Trump was on Nightline, Fox, CNN, CNBC. We were a nation in thrall to our own stupidity. And just that movement from this very kind of personal, psychological, creative, likely autobiographical, to this more kind of social satire was, was uh, just so nimble and and uh, memorable. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, I think he gives writers permission to make these big jumps. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that I really liked about it as well. And there was a lot of flow, a lot of energy Uh, in it as well as well as uh, some some big ideas told in complex ways maybe not exactly like uh, like we're used to hearing them and I I, I like that
1: yeah and he's he's not an entirely likable kind of character is is as well I mean he's 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 kind of complicated and uh, his perspectives. And so I think that wonderful scene near the end where, where uh, um, he gives a talk, a guest talk at uh, a college that doesn't go uh, uh, quite well. And then he kind of writes, college was now a customer experience, not a pedagogical one. And what the college can, uh, customer wanted was only what had been advertised to lure them. Physical comforts, moral reassurance, unceasing approbation. And uh, just kind of the precision of his, his, his kind of satire and, and willingness to kind of call bullshit on, on so much of our social institutions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I would, but I would remind us that it's, that's that he's not taking our classes, David. Yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. None of that. No, no moral reassurance in our classes. <laughs> Few physical comforts either. But. Uh, that's true. Also true. <laughs> if anybody sat in those chairs. I understand we're getting new ones.
0: Anyways, do you, do you have any other just like quick hits of, of other yeah. books that you you recommend? Uh, a, a great favorite for anyone in love with the writing process and, um, and enjoy a little bit of uh, the Russians and some humor is George Saunders' uh, Swim in a Pond in the Rain. Uh, this is, it's essentially a craft class on writing given by the very funny George Saunders. And he's looking at his favorite uh, Russian uh, short stories, including uh, one or two by, by Chekhov and uh it's just wonderful and warm-hearted and generous um and the other i would say i just read this recently is john mcphee's encounter with the arch druid which is not about druids uh nobody dances around at stonehenge it is actually about uh one of the key leading uh, early environmentalists who founded the sierra club and mcphee very artfully um, stages, encounters between uh, David Brower, this activist, with uh, mining developers, real estate developers, and, you know, sort of his arch enemies, and they have fascinating conversations Um So this was published 50 years ago, and it really feels like both a historical document and something that's really living today in an artful piece of nonfiction. So those would be my two. Um, What about you, David? uh
1: well yeah for my memory class I, I re- read a bunch of and reread a bunch of uh, interesting ones Alicia Elliott's a mind spread out on the ground that title essay I've reread multiple times about kind of uh, mental health in an indigenous context but her whole collection is so wonderful and so varied and each of these essays seen through a different kind of metaphor or symbol or experiment in structure and ending in this very powerful um, participatory essay that really kind of confronts your own complicity in, in a lot of these um, difficult uh, questions. Uh, Claudia Rankine's Citizen, which I reread and, and can only uh, recommend especially. I mean, I think that the George, George Floyd verdict is, is coming in if it hasn't already. And she really kind of captures in this complex, fragmented, vivid hybrid of Poetry, memoir, and even video transcripts, uh, fo- photographs, as well the experience of living in America in in this uh, in a black body and the and the weight of it that um, that she carries as well. Um, I listened to it in an audio book, and I, I've got to get a copy. But Anna Maria Machado's *In the Dream Host just blew me away with its structure and how it's is. A series of, of multiple short chapters, which all begin as like the Dream House as X or the Dream House as Y, where X and Y and Z are different little subgenres, or um, and it all provides like this this mosaic in which he explores domestic violence, but domestic violence within a lesbian uh, relationship, both kind of experimental and very powerful. And, and finally, for novels, The Memory Police by Yoko agawa has to be one of my favorite novels of the last five or ten years it was uh, written in 1994 we just recently translated into English and it's sort of a Japanese speculative uh, fiction in an almost Orwellian uh, tradition in, in this kind of mysterious island society in which memory or which people are told they have to forget certain things everything from music to birds, to eventually books, uh, and and the memory police enforced uh, this forced forgetting, and it's all seen through the the eyes of um, uh, a novelist. Uh, and it's just this kind of powerful sense of um, uh, existential uh, drama, and, and yet a, a human love story at its center as well. And finally, my big, my big pandemic reading project. I, I, uh, a friend on Facebook uh, wrote me into joining um, four people for uh, um, uh, to read Marcel Proust in Search of Lost Time, the famously and famously huge um, French autobiographical novel in seven volumes. Uh, it also has a really good graphic novel um, that's made a part of it uh, and we're like I think a hundred pages from uh, the end after uh, a journey of 2,400 pages with lots of ups and downs and slow bits and absolutely fascinating bits and philosophical bits and social bits and funny bits and, and, and such an interesting perspective of memory and I hope not to jinx it but it feels like yes I can finally go to my grave having said that that I have summited Mount uh, Proust, ideally in the next couple of weeks. But yeah, if it wasn't for the pandemic, I don't think I would have ever gotten through it. I'd been fallen off its uh, cliffs multiple times before, having not gotten more than than through the first book or so. So yeah, that's great. Um,
0: Thank you for that reading list. I'm looking forward to it for the summer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And maybe maybe our readers or our listeners can uh, send in their own uh, recommendations. I know I think we've probably only got a couple more episodes uh, in us before we retreat to our, our little uh, writing dens uh, for our summer break uh, and return in September with a, a more regular production schedule for for the, the, the podcast and, and I'm sure lots of, uh, more to talk about then. So thank you, Deborah. I, I've missed chatting with you over these past Few weeks, it's it's a, a delight to uh, talk about uh, writing that we love.
0: Exactly, a pleasure.